So I want to begin tonight with a question for you. What do you do when you hear a teacher gives a, a brief little talk and you have no clue what she or he said? You know, some confusing thing. You ask an expert. Okay, who's an expert? Another teacher or the same teacher? <laughs> the same teacher. Okay, so you hope that there's a question and answer session afterwards and you ask a question. Okay, okay, those are good things to do. Well, what if there wasn't a question and answer session? Or what if, it, I don't know, you were, didn't know how to formulate the question? Then what? Meditate on it. See what comes up. Meditate on it. Okay, yeah, that's a good thing. Look things up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming you pull out your phone or you go home and you look them up on the when you get home or something like that. Or some of you may even have like those old-fashioned books. <laughs> you know, where you pull it out and you look up something on an index a Buddhist reference book, a sutta, an encyclopedia. Okay, okay, nobody probably looks up a paper encyclopedia anymore. But, uh, you know, something. We go for an outside resource. What, there's a hand over there. Sometimes I talk to another person who's there. You know, that, that and, can help. Yeah, and just, it, changes the, it changes it. Yeah, I think when you even just, just before you leave, if you're perplexed, if you're stunned, and you just take a moment to walk out with somebody or catch somebody before they get into their car and say, did you understand what was meant by blah, blah, dee, dee, blah? Or do you have any idea what we just listened to? <laughs> and hopefully this will happen sometimes. Hopefully it'll be a good thing when it happens. Because... Some, if you only heard things that you already understood, then where would the challenge be? Where would the learning be? Now, sometimes we're perplexed because the teacher was not so articulate. And sometimes we're perplexed because we haven't had the experience yet that the teacher is describing. And so for out experientially, we don't quite get it. Because we really understand something when something speaks to our experience. But one of the things that can help support the development of experience is to already have an intellectual inkling. To have heard something that points the mind in that direction to think, okay, let me explore that or let me allow that or let me just make space for that or maybe just not be upset when an experience happens that's new. So I think thinking about how we might experience perplexity, confusion, bewilderment when hearing perhaps a Dharma talk, I think is, it can be very helpful to allowing us to really work with this material. Now I asked this question to start out because my topic tonight is Mahakachana. And he was renowned, he was famous for being able to, to be the person when you say, ask an expert. He was the person that people went to when the Buddha gave a talk and they did not understand a word that was said. <laughs> they stumbled over to Mahakachana and asked him to please explain the matter to him. So, 
I've titled this talk, Mahakachana, Clarifying the Most Cryptic Teachings. And I want to remember this remarkable man, Venerable Mahakachana, because his teachings have played a very significant part in the understanding of Buddha Dhamma. The teachings of the Buddha spread far and wide in India during his lifetime, even though there was no internet, even though there was no social media, even though there was no telephone. And I know you may wonder how people managed to survive in such technological deprivation, but they did. And what they did is they listened carefully and they spoke with each other. And traveling monks would spread the teachings of the Buddha by word of mouth. The teachings were spread throughout the whole populated region of northern India because people talked with each other. So they would hear a teaching, they would memorize a teaching, they would recite the verses, and then they would share those verses. And then they would sit down and try to figure out what it meant. They would discuss the meaning. The verses of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, found their way into conversations as far as some very remote regions in what is now Nepal or Afghanistan. And the monk that I want to speak about tonight, Venerable Mahakachana, lived in a frontier region, not near the center of the Buddhist world at the time. But he lived in a region known as Avanti, which is in central India, what's the contemporary state of Madhya Pradesh. And it's a bit, it's quite a bit southwest of where the Buddha primarily lived and taught. Well, it may not be so far on a train, it may not be so far on an airplane, so tourists may not think it's so very far. But when your only form of transportation are your own two feet. It counts as a good long distance. Living on the frontier as a monastic had a lot of hardships. I mean, it's hard enough to live as a monastic where the Buddha is famous and well-known, but to live in the frontier as a monastic was quite challenging. And the monastic community was small. They were not well-supported. Venerable Mahakachana did indeed have students, but not many. And at one point, Mahakachana was the man who petitioned the Buddha to modify some of the monastic rules, part of the Vinaya, in order to accommodate the challenges that monastics faced who were living in remote areas. So the monastics can thank Venerable Mahakachana for the rule that allows them to wear sandals sandals with thick linings because of the rough terrain in some of those outlying areas. The monks also were permitted then to bathe frequently. It might seem a little bit odd, but I guess originally there may have been some restrictions on bathing, maybe to distinguish them from the ritual bathing or the ritual baths that were predominant at the time. I'm not sure the details of it, but I understand that in the region where Mahakachana was living in Avanti, it was really expected or necessary that they bathe more frequently. 
change of the rules also allowed them to wear sheepskins and goatskins. So it must have been that these garments were necessary in some of the outlying regions. And they were then able to, instead of having to give up, if they accepted a robe on behalf of another monk or accepted various supplies on behalf of another monk who wasn't present in the monastery, usually they had to get rid of them immediately. They couldn't hold a second robe. There were restrictions on what they were allowed to possess. But the rules were modified to allow somebody to hold that robe until the monk that it was saved for came back and received it. And then they only had 10 days in which to get rid of one of their robes. Since there was fewer monks and more space between them, it allowed a little bit more flexibility even in their relationship to possessions. And perhaps most significantly is that ordination had previously required 10 fully ordained bhikkhus. And in the remote regions, it was allowed now to ordain somebody with just five bhikkhus, so long as one of them was an expert in the monastic rules of the Vinaya. And there's lots of little vignettes and stories in the text about some of Mahakachana's students who wanted to ordain but there were never enough monks around. <laughs> so they couldn't ordain. They had to stay as like lay people or novices helping out, practicing, but they couldn't ordain because they didn't have the right number of monks in those regions. When I was reading about Mahakachana and seeing how he had petitioned the Buddha to make these changes, what I was reflecting on was just how practical and how flexible the Buddha was to be willing to respond to the different cultural needs, the different conditions in different places, the different climates that required different kinds of clothing. And we can cite some of these modifications as a recognition of and an allowance of the need to change those rules, to modify them so that they fit the social conditions that the monks were actually in. This allowing the monastics to fit into the social group that they were then a part of enabled the Dhamma to be transmitted and to be accepted within these cultural and climactic and regional differences. But this isn't primarily what Mahakachana is remembered for. He's remembered for his distinctive analytical abilities, for his clarity of exposition, and for his talent as a teacher. Very often when we hear the teachings of the Buddha, the setting is some kinds of question. Somebody approaches the Buddha and asks a question. Or the Buddha is wandering about, and he sees something, and he responds to it. He's inspired by a situation that is occurring in the community and occurring in the sangha, or perhaps even occurring in nature. And he teaches to that or with that in mind. So most of these were very person-to-person, face-to-face teachings. They weren't prepared lectures. I don't think the Buddha ever went in with 18 pages of notes before he gave his talk. Somebody asked a question and he responded, or he approached a gathering of monastics and they asked him for teachings and he spoke to 
whatever point was of inspiration to him that day. But very often the Buddhist talks began with some kind of a statement, a brief statement of there are six ways of doing this. There are four kinds of persons who are like this. There are this or that. Or some little scenario or synopsis or simile that the Buddha would compare the Dharma to. And then that synopsis or that little brief teaching or that basic statement would then be explained, analyzed, embellished with metaphors and similes, and it would often, the suttas, not always, but often concluded with somebody getting enlightened or the listeners rejoicing or feeling gladdened or having their doubts dissolve. But sometimes when the Buddha gave these teachings, he didn't follow them up with the similes and the explanations and the analysis. He didn't fill out the whole picture. Sometimes he gave very cryptic teachings. And frankly, if the listeners didn't then follow it up with further questions in order to inquire into the meaning, then the Buddha would sometimes just get up from his seat, go off and meditate somewhere else retire to some solitary place or go lay down and rest his back. And there are a number of times when the Buddha did this, where he just gave some you know, deep and profound teaching. Nobody asked any questions, so he trotted off. When this happened, there's sometimes these descriptions of the monks being perplexed, being rattled, being confused, being dumbfounded. And then... They had to deal with it. And I think it's significant that these were preserved in the Pali Canon because it tells me that the Buddha was not trying to entertain his audience. He was not trying to do some comedy routine or keep the conversation going for the required 90 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever was required. He wasn't offering the teachings for mass consumption or for passive hearing in any way. He was expecting his audience to engage. Well, audience might be the wrong word. He was expecting his disciples in this way to engage by questioning, by analyzing, by contemplating the Dhamma. Because they're wisdom teachings, they require exploration, contemplation, and reflection. So when the Buddha gave these brief teachings and then departed, leaving a bunch of bewildered monks behind, they would look around at each other and realize that they were all a bit perplexed. They would admit to each other that they did not understand, and so they would seek an expert. They would look for a senior monk who was able to explain the matter. And so Mahakachana, whenever he was around, was the person that they would go to. And he finally became designated as, or praised as, or recognized as, the monk that was foremost of those who analyze in detail the meaning of what was stated in brief. Now, every one of Mahakachana's discourses where he, an he analyzes and, and fills out what the Buddha said is a really incredible gem of wisdom. 
their clear expositions with exacting detail, very often on profound and liberating teachings. His talks are characterized by carefulness, by a thorough analysis, by meticulousness. They're meaty, they're full of content. His talks generally were not embellished with similes or with parables or with illustrations or with poems. He would take some enigmatic statement of the Buddha and expound it in detail by reframing it alongside other aspects of established Dhamma, Dhamma doctrine. So he would take some obscure pithy teaching that the Buddha had given and contextualize it with other lists that would be more familiar or the structures of other doctrine and teachings. One classic example is the Madhupindika Sutta, the Honeyball Discourse. And in the Mahupindika Sutta, we find an exploration of how the mind gets entangled in proliferations of thought what's called in Pali, papancha. And this is the teaching that the Buddha gave before he wandered off, leaving them perplexed. Let's see, maybe you'll understand it. The Buddha said, As to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a person, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendencies to lust aversion, views, doubt, conceit, the desire for being and ignorance. This is the end of reliance on rods and weapons, of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice and false speech. Here, these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Is it crystal clear? Yeah, yeah. Some of you you are familiar with this. Some of you have maybe know the sutta and understand it, or have practiced enough in your meditation that you know how proliferations of mind lead to war, which is basically, you know, rods and weapons and quarrels and brawls and disputes. How do we go from a thought to violence? And how does it end? But the monks were baffled. They were confused. And so they went to Venerable Mahakachana for an explanation. But of course, Mahakachana didn't just say, Welcome, welcome, come. I can explain this matter. Get out your pencils. Get out your pens. I'll pull out the chalkboard. Nah. Instead, he scolded them. He told them they should have asked the Buddha. They had the heartwood of wisdom there. The Buddha was right there. They've passed up the heartwood of the Buddha, and now they're coming to ask a minor branch. But after much scolding that sometimes would go on for multiple paragraphs, (laughs) Mahakachana would indeed consent to explain the matter, and he would do so with great clarity. Now, in relationship to this discourse, Mahakachana's elaboration described how the deluded mind, when influenced by the underlying tendencies of craving conceit and views, can be distorted to experience things in terms of I, me, and mine. And then 
that distortion of perception that starts to see things and interpret them in terms of I, me, and mine affects how we perceive things, which leads to arguments, disputes, and violence. The initial delusion, the construction of self-becoming in a moment of sensory contact really has far-reaching consequences. And so this teaching explores how eye-making and how mind-making come about. And we work with that. We understand it, but we work with it in our meditation. We work with it in our daily lives. We see how we construct a sense of self in experience and when we don't. And what's the difference in the quality of mind when there's a lot of selfing and when there isn't? What leads more towards peace and clarity and wisdom and kindness? And what leads to recriminations and anger and dispute and violence? So each time we realize that we're lost in a thought that our mind has wandered off into proliferation, papancha, we have an opportunity to see if there is any selfing there. Very likely, most of the time there is. Is there any delusion? And so we notice that and we come back to the present moment, sitting and breathing. We interrupt all those trains of proliferating thoughts that fuel and feed deluded distraction. We keep interrupting them. We keep catching them. We keep finding ourselves lost, and we come right back. We come right back. But I think this practice of, of meditation isn't done outside the understanding of what we're doing. We do this as a training how many times did you bring your attention back to the present moment in that 30-minute meditation that we had? Perhaps many times. Don't worry about the many times that you get lost, but rejoice in the many times that you come back, that you open up, that you reconnect. Now, on another occasion, a similar thing happened. The Buddha uttered a verse... And the monks didn't understand it. But in this case, this was a verse that was memorized and passed throughout all over. It was a commonly recited verse, commonly recited and discussed. And this particular verse is also from the Middle Link Discourses. And it's a single excellent night. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made, tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So at this time, the monks were frequently discussing this. And it was so frequently discussed that it was more or less expected that people knew this and not only could recite it, but could explain the meaning. And so 
there was a series of discourses where different monks or devas, celestial beings, would come and ask a monk, do you know this verse? Can you recite it to me? And can you explain the meaning? And if the monk couldn't recite it or couldn't explain the meaning, they were advised to go learn it and to learn what it meant. And in one of these, the monk didn't know it and couldn't explain the meaning, so he trotted off to find somebody who could explain it and approached Mahakachana. And Mahakachana's exposition was very interesting because it contrasted the way that an untrained mind or a trained mind meets the normal encounters of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or mental phenomena. Experiences of past, experiences in the present, and experiences of the future. Because an untrained mind a mind that does not have the wisdom, a mind that is not well-developed through meditation and through reflection. An untrained mind is bound to experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thought, is bound by lust and desire, by craving. Whereas a trained mind is still sees, hears, smells, tastes, touches some things, but is not entangled and confused by lust and desire, but simply knows those experiences are happening, knows it with mindfulness, knows it with clarity, with a mind free from craving. So it might sound very simple, but he brilliantly honed right in on the central problem. He identified the culprit, which is the force of desire and lust. And he situated the, his analysis in what people actually experience. We experience seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thought. And so he explained this discourse going right to the, to the root of the problem the attachment, lust, craving, and desire for the experiences of the senses. Now this is important to remember because some meditators still think that the thoughts of the past are the problem or the thoughts of the future are the problem or for that matter that thoughts are a problem or that sounds are a problem or that tastes or smells are distracting are a problem that shouldn't be happening in our meditation. Or that visual objects are somehow a problem. But there's no problem in any of these experiences. The problem is the desire and lust, the entanglement, the craving, the clinging that may arise in response to memories and thoughts of the past, plans and expectations for the future, and narrations and commentary on our present sensory experience. So Mahakachana's explanation of this discourse carefully explains how desire and lust can arise in response to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. How desire and lust can arise in response to events that have happened in the past. Because you've probably sometimes experienced craving and desire for something that is long past. And how it can arise for something that hasn't even happened yet. It's called fantasy. And how it can also arise in the present moment. But he went on to also explain how one can liberate the mind from desire and lust and craving. And we liberate the mind by attending wisely to those very same contacts. 
of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thoughts of past, of present, and of future. So we don't avoid the contacts. We don't avoid the experiences, but we meet them with wisdom. And so his explanation, his exposition, takes a rather poetic utterance of the Buddha and provides the details that enable one to understand it in a way that we can put it in practice. So we can notice if and when our thoughts of past sensory encounters are infused with desire and lust, or when they're free from desire and lust, when there's strong nostalgia, longing, comparing, craving to repeat an experience that we had in the past. Those are all times when our mind is entangled and bound with desire and lust for it, with craving and attachment. And do you notice when your plans are practical or when they're fueled by entitlement or expectation or demand, some form of desire and lust and craving? Do you notice, though, so you can make a plan and be completely free from those corruptions? You make a plan because it's practical. You make a plan because there's wisdom, but you respond to the changes that happen. And you don't keep the mind fixed on, I have to have it this way. Our minds think. We don't try to stop the mind from thinking. Our minds are going to think about the past. They're going to recall past events. We're going to contemplate the future. And we will analyze, we will observe, we will recognize what's happening in the present moment. It's only problematic when those encounters and thoughts are conditioned by desire and lust. I want to mention a third famous discourse that was given by Mahakachana, where he also explains another verse by the Buddha. And this one says, this is called an exposition of the summary from the Middle Link Discourses. A bhikkhu should examine things in such a way that while he is examining them, his consciousness is not distracted and scattered externally, nor stuck internally, and by not clinging, he does not become agitated. If his consciousness is not distracted and scattered externally, nor stuck internally, and if by not clinging, he does not become agitated, then for him there is no origination of suffering, of birth, aging, and death in the future. So again, then, the monks go and ask Mahakachana to explain this, and after berating them, etc., anyway, it goes on. He finally explains and describes being distracted externally as being entangled in sensual pursuits. And being distracted internally. What do you think that is? Some people will think, oh, well, maybe we're distracted by our heartbeat <laughs> or by our temperature. But no, it's distracted by, through attachment to the refined states of meditative development. So it's more like, instead of internally, externally, in terms of the body, it's worldly and unworldly, 
or it's the sensual things of the world, or it's a more refined meditative thing. But again, the problem is the craving for it, is the attachment. So we find again that he's taken a pithy vert teaching by the Buddha, and he finds, hones in on and teases out where exactly the problem lies and where the potential for liberation is. So he not only clearly identifies those conditions that produce the suffering, he highlights how one can free the mind from the suffering. And I really have a warm spot in my heart for Venerable Mahakachana. He always honed in on the problem. He found the causes of the problem. And after seeing the problem, after turning to analyze the problem, after being willing to understand what the problem really was, then he would expound a liberating solution. It's simple, but I think it's quite beautiful. Now, although Mahakachana was mostly renowned for these particular discourses when he explained in detail the teachings of the Buddha, he also taught independently, obviously, because he you know, lived out in the regions and <laughs> was a teacher um, and would only come periodically to where the, the larger Sangha and the Buddha was located. And there was one interesting discourse that he gave where it really reflected on the social conditions in the time of, at the time of India. Because Mahakachana was of kind of pedigree Brahmin stock, a priestly caste. He had a high birth. His father was posted as the chaplain to the local king. He could trace back his family lineage many, many generations. And this was important to the Brahmins of the time. Now, the Buddha was a Katya, and he was a member of this Katya class, which is a warrior caste. And so he was coming more from a clan of leaders. In India at the time, the caste system was quite strong, but there was still some contention as to which caste held the top place. Was it the Brahmins or was it the Katyas? And so there were some discourses where there were some kind of like wanting to understand where does the Buddha stand on this question? What is the Buddha's teachings? And the social issue of the hierarchy and the ranking of the castes played out with various kinds of gestures of who should honor whom and who sits on a higher seat and who eats first and who serves who. Now, within the monastic order, of course, the Buddha wiped that out. He dismantled the caste designations because they created a system of seniority not based upon birth, but based upon date and time of ordination. So whoever was ordained first was senior. So that set the order of high seats and low seats and who eats first and who bows to who. But the social issue of the castes was actually a big deal at the time. It raised concerns about social power, control, harmony, social order, expectation, what one's duty was, who had privilege, who didn't, who had prestige, who didn't. And, you know, in all cultures at all times, there's something that is being discussed or argued, I think, in this kind of dynamic whether it's uh, debates about women's rights or the, the suffrage movement of the 19th century, 
or segregation in the 20th century or perhaps racism today. So on one occasion, Mahakachana was asked which caste was supreme. And of course, being from such a distinguished Brahmin family, his answer might be particularly informative. Mahakachana was basically asked by a Brahmin king to comment on the claim made by Brahmins that the Brahmins are the highest caste. Those of any caste are inferior. Brahmins are the fairest caste. Those of any other caste are dark. Only Brahmins are purified, not non-Brahmins. Brahmins alone are the sons of Brahma. The offspring of Brahma, born of his mouth, born of Brahma, created by Brahma, heirs of Brahma. Okay, you might just think this guy needs a diversity training workshop. (laughs) But they really took these kinds of issues seriously. And Mahakachana's reply was very simple. He said simply that this claim is just a saying in the world. It's not substantial, just a saying in the world. And that's just something people say. It's not substantial, it has no divine sanction. It's just something that was said, nothing more than an opinion, nothing more than a view. Now, that wasn't quite enough, perhaps, to take the kind of the puff out of the Brahmin's kind of puffed-up sense of glory. So he went on to explain why. He said, it's just a saying in the world. And he said that somebody of any social class who gains wealth can command the labor of those of any other caste. Even a member of the low caste, if wealthy, can enroll a Brahmin in his service. His second point was, one of any caste who violates the principles of morality will be reborn in hell, while one of any caste who observes the moral precepts will be reborn in a happy realm. The third was, one of any caste who breaks the law would be punished. And the fourth reason, one of any caste who renounces the world and becomes an ascetic would receive homage and respect. I wanted to bring in this because most of Mahakachana's teachings pertain to liberation. But even though he usually taught directly to liberation, he did respond to social issues when asked. And there was another similar kind of situation where he was being taunted by a group of rowdy boys, Brahmins, of course, who were all kind of like stomping around him and yelling abuses. And Mahakachana said to them, one is not a Brahmin by birth, but by the training of mind, by the guarding of the senses. And his teaching ends with this verse, a mind that is well concentrated, purified and free from blemish, tender toward all sentient beings, that is the path for reaching Brahma. But of course the boys got really angry at this. And they went back to their teacher complaining that that Mahakachana was denigrating and scorning the sacred Brahmin hymns. And so their teacher, wise teacher, didn't rush to to conclusions uh, based upon what these angry boys were saying. He approached Mahakachana himself and asked what he had said. Don't you wish people would really ask that question before believing gossip? 
And so Mahakachana recited the conversation that he had had with the youths. And the teacher was happy. The teacher thought it was excellent. And so he invited Mahakachana to his home for the meal the next day and demanded that those kids serve him. So sometimes Mahakachana spoke to these social issues. Sometimes he spoke to practical things that the community of monks needed. But most of the time it was for liberation. He lived usually as a solitary monk and only rarely really dealt with these Sangha issues. But they came up significantly in terms of his life because he was somebody who was significant in continuing the teachings of the Buddha. He had a number of distinguished Dhamma students, not a large following of students, but some very distinguished ones. When the Buddha died at the age of 80, which was before Mahakachana's own death, the Sangha had to gather together to bring the teachings together, to recite them, to codify them, to put them together in a way that could easily be held and memorized and preserved. And it was credited to Mahakachana's skill in expounding in detail the meaning of teachings given in brief, that his methodology in those teachings became the technique that was the exposition, the technique of exposition that formed the basis of the early commentarial tradition. And we might even say that Venerable Mahakachana could be considered the first Buddhist commentator. So even while the Buddha was alive, he gave the commentary on those teachings. His explanations were then, would go back to the Buddha, like if he explained something to the group of monks who were confused, he sent them back to the Buddha. They said what they had learned from Mahakachana, and then the Buddha gave it the seal of approval, saying that is exactly what I would have said. (laughs) So in this way, by the teachings of Mahakachana being approved by the Buddha himself, they were accepted as an authentic contribution to the Pali Canon. So those are my thoughts about Mahakachana, who clarified the most cryptic teachings and became the first Buddhist commentator. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.